All right, great. So uh, we're going to go into my teaching here on the second Moses, the second Passover, and the new covenant. This is part two. And so we've been in the holy days, and we had some celebrations in between. And so I kind of put this off so that we can get this out and uh, in one of our regular services. So I think you're going to enjoy this. It connects some dots for us that are really important to connect. And I think it really speaks volumes in terms of who we are today and the message that we have for those around us. Now, if I have some time too, at the end of the service, if I have some time, I want to open it up. And if anyone has a prophetic word that you would like to give, a word of encouragement to the harvest, a word that would bring comfort, uh, bring encouragement, bring hope. We've been through a tough, tough year, right? And we're trying to rebuild and trying to regather and get some momentum. And so I know that some of us have been somewhat discouraged over this last year. And so I want to encourage you. And so if you have a word from the Lord of encouragement for our community, I'll open that up and we'll run a mic to you and you can give that at the end of the service. Um, should we have time? And we should have time. You know me. All right. So in fact, in fact, I should get my phone up here. Uh, does anyone have the time? What time is it? Actually, 2.04? Okay. Okay. Okay, good. All right. The second Moses, the second Passover, and the new covenant. So we've looked at Yeshua as the prophesied second and greater Moses. And we noted that he also ushered in and initiated the second and the greater Passover through his death and resurrection. In him, we all are experiencing the forgiveness of our sins as well as the powerful exodus out of the dominion of sin and shame that we all personally are born into. So today we're going to focus on the establishment of the long-awaited new covenant that Jeremiah, as well as other prophets, prophesied. The new covenant has come. It has replaced the old covenant. The old covenant is gone. It is not in force. It's been replaced with the new covenant. And this is really powerful in so many ways. Uh, I think that part of our dilemma is that uh, many people think that the covenant is still intact. We have major personas in the evangelical movement who continue to this day to suggest that Israel has a covenant through Moses with God. And I'm always thinking, really? Because I heard that covenant was broken irreparably and removed hundreds and hundreds of years ago, over 2,000 years ago, gone. So how is it they still have a covenant? I'm just really surprised when I hear that all the time. And I think it's tragic because really what it does is it moves Jesus to the side. He's really not that important. He's really not that necessary because after all, the Jewish people have a covenant with God through Moses. I'm here to declare what the prophet said clearly in the word. That covenant's over. There is no covenant. It was broken beyond repair. It required a new covenant to come along. And if you're not in the new covenant, you're not in covenant with the living God. And so that's an important message. I'm going to uh, break that down a little bit as we move into it. So we're going to go back to the old covenant, Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to begin to work my way down through here. 
Uh, so in verse 1, in reading, it says, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. Verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the offer of the covenant, a covenant that would result in Israel becoming the people of God. He saved them in Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt, and now he's saying to this people group, along with the mixed multitudes that came with them, to Jews and Gentiles who had come all the way to Sinai, he sang to them. Now, indeed, if you'll accept my offer, I will make you my people. You will become my treasured people, my chosen people, a holy nation unto me, a kingdom of priests representing me and my kingdom to all the nations of the world. If you'll accept this, you'll become this. That's the offer of the covenant made with Moses. The offer that was made was an offer of becoming the people of God. The covenant of Moses is about the Jewish people becoming the people of God. Am Segulah, my treasured people. It's that covenant that brings them into that standing with God. That covenant standing results in them becoming the treasured people of God of God. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we shall do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you, Moses, forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Verses 1 through 18 of chapter 24 of Exodus. This is where it all gets ratified. They've initially accepted the offer God has set some of the requirements out and now has moved into the formal ratification of this covenant. He said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near nor shall the people come up with them. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. 
Second time around. So Moses wrote down all of the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. In the ancient Near East, this was referred to as a blood covenant. It was the highest and the strongest of all covenants because animals were sacrificed. Their blood was shed in relationship to the covenant being ratified. It's what we call a blood covenant. Just, Just know this is a big, big deal. Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, third time around, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Verse 8. So Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You you can imagine how striking that would have been. You can imagine if you were there, right, and and, and participating in this, the animals being sacrificed and then offered up as burnt offerings. You can imagine the blood being poured out on the altar, just the sights, the sounds, everything that's taking place. And then Moses takes the blood and he throws it on the people. They're, they're in a sense, splattered with the blood of these animals. You can imagine how, how that would affect you. I mean, it's, it's so dramatic when you think about this. And he says, behold, look, see the blood of the covenant. This, this covenant now is being ratified, cemented, if you will, put into force. They're becoming the people of God through a blood covenant. Verse 9 says, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. They were supposed to stay away. Only Moses was supposed to go up. But in the midst of this ceremony, right, everyone's caught up in the moment. It's so dramatic in every way. And now Moses moves with the 70 elders. They move up into that area where God said only Moses should come. But notice what it says. He did not stretch out his hand. God God did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, even though they came forward when he said, don't come forward. I I think the people were so overwhelmed, so hungry for an encounter with God, so, so ready to become his people. They were caught up in the moment and they came forward. And I think God was overwhelmed with the response. And so he said, you know, it's okay. Come Come on in. We're we're, going to have an encounter here. The people and God himself, an encounter, heaven and earth coming together. They saw God. 
They ate and drank. You know, it communicates, you know, relationship. It communicates communion. This is what we call communion, right? Where do you build most of your relationships? Over meals. That's, that's the most intimate setting where you go deep in relationships with friends. It's over those mealtimes. What we have here communicated to us is that God and the people of Israel are building this relationship that's so deep and intimate based on the blood of those animals. This covenant comes into force. I want you to hold in, in your mind and in your heart as we move down here the words that Moses spoke. Behold the blood of the covenants. Behold the blood of the covenants. This is significant in every way. Verse 12, now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there. I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment, which I've written for their instruction. He's saying, come on up, Moses. Now that Israel's become my people, I'm going to give you a set of instructions that will inform them of how I want them to live their lives in the context of this new covenant. I want to I give to my people a new way of living because all they know is the darkness of Egypt, the ways of the Egyptians. And I want my people to be holy and different. And I have a holy way of living for my people. So I want you to come up and give this to you and you can bring it back down to the people. So that's what Moses did. I'm going to read on and we'll, we'll explore this a little bit. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant. Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders, he said, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on the mountain and the glory covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called in Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud and he went up to the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I don't have time to develop this, but on the heels of this is the golden calf incident. I should say debacle the golden calf debacle. Because while he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights and he doesn't have any food, the people assume there's no way he could live on the mountaintop. It's so cruel. It's so desolate, right? There's no way he can live up there for 40 days and 40 nights. There's just no way. In fact, they basically said, because they didn't know the length of time. God didn't say it's going to be 40 days and 40 nights. God didn't tell them anything. All they know is day after day, week after week, he's gone. They, they then assumed he's dead. He died on the mountain. So they, they turn to Aaron and they say, Aaron, make us, make us a God. We're going back to Egypt. We're not going to die out here in the wilderness. We're going back to Egypt. Moses is dead. Give us a new God. We're going back. So 
before the covenant can actually even get up and running, they make a golden calf. They step back into their idolatry, which was a form of adultery, okay? That's a form of spiritual adultery. Why? Because they were becoming the people of God. They were becoming the wife of God. The covenant is described in the language of marriage, the metaphor of marriage. And so Israel's already cheating. She's already breaking covenant, and she's actually worshiping another God already early on. This was horrible in every sense. And what is a greater, greater pain in the heart of God is this was not to be a single incident. This is something that Israel's going to fall back into over and over and over. In fact, it will go on for hundreds and hundreds of years, and God in His grace and His mercy continues to reach out, continues to give them you know, chances, and, and yet Israel just spurns that. And so God finally says to the prophets, I'm separating, I'm separating from you. And, and that marital separation should have got her, you know, Israel's attention, and it, and it didn't. So God finally moves from the separation, and he says, all right, I'm going to divorce her. With that, we, we, we have this in the prophets. In fact, in fact, I've talked to a number of Messianic Jewish scholars about this phenomenon and this uh, set of passages here, and, and I've asked, so what do you think about the divorce of Israel? I mean, you know, that's, that's a pretty shocking thing, Right? And I've never, ever had any real good dialogue. Uh, I've been shut down over and over because the horror of thinking that Israel's divorced from God is too much for most Jewish psyches. And so even Messianic Jewish scholars would just say, well, you know, I, you know, I mean, he didn't really divorce her. I mean, he, he, he wanted to divorce her. He even threatened, but you know, you know, God, he's merciful and he's gracious. I said, well, that's not what the text says. I mean, the text seems it makes a very clear case that he divorced her, you know. Well, I'll get back to you on that. Weeks go by, no one ever got back to me. It's just been shocking. I just think, what is the deal with this? I know it's a tough, tough area, but still, we need to wrestle with this because this is the crux of, whole, you know, who Yeshua is and what he did in relationship to restoring the covenant with Israel. But here's the passage. There's actually two passages. First one's Jeremiah chapter 3, 6 through 9. It says, Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree. She was a harlot there. Now, now God is speaking through the prophet, and he's qualifying their rebellion as adultery. It's spiritual adultery. He's not saying, you know, all the Israelites are going up under trees on hills and having sex with pagans. That's not what he's saying. He's saying Israel has fallen back into pagan forms of worship and pagan ways. And that's the equivalent, serving other gods, that's the equivalent of breaking faith with me, her husband. She's playing the role of a harlot. I thought, verse 7, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. Verses 8 and 9. 
And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and also was a harlot. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. How do you commit adultery with stones and trees? Obviously, it's all about idolatry. And how do the pagans worship their gods? With stone monuments and trees. That was a big part of pagan worship. Okay, that, that, that all has reference to what we do today in a modern setting with, with Christmas trees. It's all rooted in that. But I don't want to get off track here. I want to just point out that they're involved in idolatry, which God said is adultery. And because of that, I am divorcing you. Let me go back here. It says, I sent her away. I sent Israel away and given her a writ of divorce. He didn't threaten her. He did it. You know, some Jewish scholars point out that the prophets, they, they were God's spokespeople. They actually acted on God's behalf. And, and there's a real good chance here that what happened in these days is Jeremiah and probably Isaiah actually made, you know, certificates of divorce and signed them on God's behalf prophesied to the people and actually signed documents to act out the prophetic word that God had divorced his people, that there actually was a writ of divorce via the prophets to get the message through, Israel, it's over. You're no longer my wife. You're no longer my people. I've sent you away. You're alienated. You're estranged. You're a nobody. You're without covenant, without standing. You've lost your identity as my people. A writ of divorce. It's very powerful, very shocking. Isaiah 50. Let me, let me read a couple of passages here or verses. Isaiah 51 through 3. Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of divorce by which I've sent your mother away? Let's go to that slide. We'll put it up. It's Isaiah 50. Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Again, exactly what Jeremiah was saying. Isaiah is saying, you know what? I sent your mother away. Isaiah is saying, actually, God's saying through Isaiah, you're not my people. Why do you keep saying that you are my people? Why do you keep saying I'm Segula? You are not my treasured people. You were once my people, you're no longer my people. Hosea says the same thing. He, he tells Hosea, go, go marry a harlot. It's like, what? That's against the Torah. It's okay. Exception to the rule. I want you to marry a harlot, and I want you to have children of a harlot, and then I want you to name their kids. You're not my people. I, I forget what the other name meant, but it, it's all related to this document of, of, of divorce. And through Hosea, he communicates to Israel, you're no longer my people. Quit saying you're my people. You were once my people, but you're no longer my people. So don't claim it. You have no standing with me. You are not my wife. You've got a certificate of divorce. I've sent you away. Stay away. 
Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions. Your mother was sent away. People, I, I, I don't know of any language more clear than these passages, which communicate that Israel once was the people of God, and at this point, no longer are the people of God. This covenant is over. You know, it's like bring your marriage certificate to your wife who's divorced you and try to convince her, look, it's the marriage certificate. And she's going to wave the divorce certificate and say, no, do you understand what a divorce is? It makes that null and void. That's over. Well, I'm your husband. No, you're not my husband. You're divorced. Go away. Do you understand what a divorce is? Israel's having problems. She thinks she's still in covenant with God and God's saying, no, you're not. So quit saying that you are. You're without covenant, no standing, no relationship, estranged and alienated. That's a huge deal for the Jewish mind. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. I have Jewish acquaintances that I've dialogued uh, with over the years on, on this issue because the claim is made over and over and over that we have a covenant with God through Moses. And I said, well, the prophets, your own prophets, your own prophets say that you don't. You know, is Jeremiah the liar, liar or Isaiah? I mean, you don't have that covenant. Yes, we do. God is... No, that's what God was saying all along. Quit saying that. It's not true. But, but to admit that it's not true, where does that leave me? If I'm a Jewish person, where does that leave me? I'm no longer part of the people of God. I've been cut off from the people of God. I have no standing. I have no place in the age to come. Yeah. Yeah, I would clamor and say, yeah, I don't, you know, these guys are wrong or they didn't mean it or whatever. Yeah, I'd have to find some way around that because that's hopeless. That's a very scary situation. Now, God is a God of grace. There's good news in this. Jeremiah, the one who prophesied that Israel's divorced, no longer has standing with God, is the same prophet who prophesies the remarriage. The remarriage. It's good news, bad news. Bad news is, you were once my people, you're no longer my people. Good news is, later on, you get to be my people again. But we're going to have to wait. Because that got to do a work in your heart, and you got to be broken with your sin in order to come back and be restored. You got to cut out this idolatry stuff. So, this was a, a huge thing for Jeremiah to prophesy such dark news, such sad news, and at the same time, give them hope. Here's the hope Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Jeremiah says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, a new covenant, a new one. Why? Because the old one's gone. So I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. God's saying, I was a husband to you. You became my wife. You broke that irreparably. 
It's gone. I divorced you. You have no standing, but I'm going to bring a new covenant. I'm going to bring a new covenant. And under that new covenant, I'm going to remarry you. And you're going to be restored to me. And everything that I promised, all the provisions of the covenants, will be restored to you. What that would communicate is this. You have no covenant standing. And you're without covenant until I bring the new one. And many, many decades are going to pass. A couple hundred years are going to pass. They're going to be longing and crying out for covenant standing, weeping over this. Elements of fear tied into this. They're going to be, you know, thinking, when is the new covenant coming? When is what Jeremiah prophesied coming? We have no covenant. We have no standing. You know, when is that going to be back in front of us so that we can come back to the Lord our God, so we can come back to our husband? Let me go on verse 33. It says, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my Torah within them and on their heart. I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. The church, the Gentile, you know, church that separated herself from Israel uh, has often thought that she replaced Israel, that somehow she became the people of God. It's not true. God says, I'm going to divorce my people, but then I'm going to remarry her. Yeah, Israel's not replaced. Israel's restored in the new covenant. No one replaces Israel. Israel's alienated and then reconciled. Yeah, no one replaces her. The new covenant is the restoration of the marriage between the same people, God and Israel. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they all will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The beauty and the power of the new covenant is it communicates personal living relationship on an individual basis. God says, I'm going to do something different in the new covenant. In the new covenant, there's going to be features there that, that, that come across from the old covenant. It's the same Torah that the old covenant had that's written on our hearts. So, so we don't lose the Torah under the new covenant. The Torah remains intact. But God says, I'm going to do something here so unique and so powerful, it's going to result in each person who believes will come into a personal relationship with me, and they'll know me personally. No one's going to have to have a priest or a rabbi or anybody else tell them about me. Each person can know me personally. That's the sizzle of the new covenant. It's better than the old covenant. It has some of the same features, but there are some things that are going to be presented that were never a part of the old covenant. What do you want, the old covenant? Or do you want the one that has so much more? You can't even have the old covenant anyway. It's been done away with. All that remains is the new covenant, and it is glorious in every way. 
So from the days, let me just summarize this, from the days of Isaiah and Jeremiah onward, Israel has no covenant with God. She's no longer his wife. She's divorced and alienated from him. Her only hope is the promise of a new covenant. Israel's no longer his people. They are alienated from him. They'll have to wait for the new covenant. So when does that come? When does the covenant that Jeremiah prophesied show up? This is the power of Jesus as the second Moses giving us a second and greater Passover. Now ushering in the second and greater covenant called the new covenant. And what does he do it? What was the setting? Passover. The Seder that he ate that night with his apostles. This is the setting in which he says, that which Jeremiah prophesied is now. It's here. You can enter in. This is like, I mean, Jesus is everything. We have yet to comprehend the greatness of Jesus. He's everything. Everything you see in the Tanakh, he brings into its fullness. He transcends all of it. He is it in its fullness. So let's pick this up. Luke 22, 14 through 20. This is Nisan the 15th at night. They've already prepared the Passover sacrifice. They've gotten it ready. They got the upper room. And now they're going to sit down. They're going to eat the Passover sacrifice. This is the last supper. This is the last Seder that he's going to enjoy with his uh, disciples. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I've earnestly desired. I've been longing for this. This is part of like, you know, a great anticipation on my part. I cannot tell you how excited I am to eat this Seder. Why? Because he is revealing himself as someone greater than Moses. He's saying, I'm the one that Moses prophesied was coming. I am the Mashiach. I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I am here to usher in the new covenant that everyone has been just panting like a deer after the water. I'm here to bring it. It's happening tonight. I'll establish it in my own blood tomorrow. It's here now. The long-awaited new covenant. When, uh, it ushers in a new era, by the way. It, a new epoch, if you will. The era of Messiah. We move from the law and the prophets, which prophesied about Messiah, into the era of Messiah and the new covenant. This is the biggest thing that could happen. For I say... To you, I shall never drink or never again eat uh, it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is what we, we uh, will, will, will develop as communion. 
It is embedded in the Passover Seder, but it transcends the Seder itself because it is the establishment of the new covenant. It makes this Seder the ultimate Seder. This is the new Passover, if you will. It commemorates not just a physical deliverance, but a spiritual deliverance as well. Luke 22 and verse 20. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. This phrase, this is the new covenant. In Jewish ears, that's all about Jeremiah 31. Maybe not in the Gentile ear, but in the Jewish ear, that signaled one thing, the long-awaited, prophesied new covenant. And Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Behold the blood, just like Moses said, behold the blood, and he sprinkled them with blood and ratified the covenant. Jesus is signaling that I'm bringing about the new covenant, and it's going to be in my blood. And that very next day, they will witness on the cross, Jesus, his blood splattered all over his body. It even splashes on the soldiers as they pierce his side. He, through his blood, establishes the long-awaited new covenant. I cannot hold in the joy that bursts forth in my heart when I think about what he did in this Seder at this Passover on the cross the next day and what that opened up for every Jew and for every Gentile. It is his glory. It is his glory. When he's in the heavenlies and, 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 the, and the angelic beings, myriads and myriads, and the 24 elders and, and those creatures around the throne, when they're all saying, you know, no, one, no one's here to open up the seals of this book, and they're weeping and crying. And then someone cries out, there is one. And in the midst of the throne, and everyone begins to turn around, is the lion of the tribe of Judah who stands as a lamb slain from the foundations of, of the world. He's the one that's worthy. He's the exalted one, the one that everyone worships because of what he did that night or the day after that night, in that last Passover Seder. What he accomplished on the cross is his glory, the redemption of every Jew and every Gentile, whosoever will, and because of that, he is forever exalted. He's above all. All power, all authority, all glory has been given to him by his Father. He's the exalted one. He is worthy of it all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion is in commemoration of his death, not his resurrection. The church got that so wrong for 2,000 plus years now. Communion's not about the resurrection. Paul says, when you do this, you proclaim his death, not his resurrection. His death. It's his death that provided atonement, not the resurrection. The resurrection is his vindication. His death is the basis for atonement for our sins. People get saved because of the death of Jesus. There's forgiveness for our sins. So when we take communion, we do that once a month, we proclaim his death as the atonement for our sins. That's the good news. That's the glory of Jesus, that the Lamb of God has come. He has slain, shed his blood on our behalf that we could be forgiven, reconciled, remarried, and restored in our relationship with God. The Jew first, and then the Gentile. Again, the church didn't replace Israel. Israel is the church. She was always the church. Once alienated, now restored through the new covenant. The Gentiles get grafted in to Israel, the church, the people of God. We get grafted in and participate with Israel. We don't become Jews. We come in as Gentiles, participating as citizens in the Israel of God. Promises of the covenant. Joining in that great redemption is to the Jew first and also the Gentile. Now, the Israel in the Middle East is also Israel. She's unbelieving Israel. She's been broken off. She doesn't have any covenant standing. But that Israel is going to come into faith as well. The initial Jews that came in, came in in pretty big numbers, still a minority, but tens of thousands of Jewish priests Embrace Jesus as the Messiah. It's in the book of Acts. And Israel was reconstituted with Jewish believers. And then Gentiles were added to that and been added for 2,000 years. And in the end, these broken off branches, they're going to see the light when God removes their veil and they're going to embrace Jesus. And there's going to be a mighty throng of the Israel that we see in the Middle East coming into, back into her tree through faith in Jesus in that new covenant being reconciled to God. And that's the eschatology that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 11. So I'm going to go ahead and close this. I just sense you have questions about it though. It's very complicated. <sighs> Does anyone have any burning questions? If not, I'm just going to go ahead and close this. If you have a burning question, but if not, I'm just going to move forward. Okay, so suffice it to say, Israel was once alienated, but through the new covenant, through Yeshua's death on the cross, she now is being remarried. And she came in through those Jewish believers in the first century. And they were a significant minority even though the majority of Israel rejected Jesus, a strong minority embraced him. And she became 
those branches that remained on the tree while the other ones were broken off. And Jewish people that do not believe in the new covenant through Yeshua, they're broken off. They're cut off. That's what their prophets say. They don't have covenant standing through Moses because that covenant's already been broken and removed. They're without covenant standing. The Jewish people who do not believe need Jesus. Don't patronize them. You know, when you say, oh, you don't need to share Jesus with them. They don't need Jesus. They have Moses. No, you do them a disservice. That's not love. That's not love. We need to share Jesus with the Jewish people. And they're going to be very upset that we would share, you know, the Jewish Jesus with them because they're Jewish and you're not. But that's part of what, like, gets under their skin and causes some jealousy. And that jealousy works out in a way that many will come to faith in him. So, we have joined, as Gentiles, Israel through faith in Jesus, being grafted in and participating now in that new covenant. I want you to rejoice in the fact that your sins are forgiven. In Messiah, your sins are forgiven. In Messiah, your sins are being forgiven day in and day out. You're going to sin today, you're going to sin tomorrow. You'll be sinning less and less. You know, if we were to graph graph it, you know, you're sinning less and less, but you're still sinning. The point is, the good news is that in Jesus Christ, your sins are no longer being taken into account. Like King David said, blessed is the man whose sins the Lord no longer takes into account. Does that mean, oh, I can go sit now? No, no, no. He loves you so much, he'll whack you upside down and all around he loves you. You don't want that. But that forgiveness happens every day. It is something that renews our soul every day. His mercies are new every day. We are growing in him. We are secure in him. He is leading the way. That is the power of the new covenant. We have a personal relationship with the living God. Hallelujah. All right, let's see. Um, Oh, just real quick. If any of you are not in the new covenant, it's easy to get in. You need to confess your sins. You need to say, Father, I'm a sinner. I am. I'm broken into my sins. But I embrace your son, Jesus, as my Lord and my Savior. I accept his work on the cross as a payment for my sins. Jesus, come into my heart. Come in. Be my Lord and Savior. That opens up the new covenant for you. That's how you get in the new covenant. And so if you haven't done that, talk to me after the service, and uh, I will pray with you, or an elder, uh, or someone on staff will pray for you. You can enter into the new covenants and be part of the new covenant today before you leave. Just let us know. So I want to encourage you with that. Great. All right. So, um, we have a few minutes here. I want to open this up. In fact, uh, Yomar, if you'll hold this mic. And if anyone has a prophetic word of encouragement, let me say that again, of encouragement. No rebuke, no repro- reproofs, no correction for our community. Just encouragement. Something that will breathe hope in us. It's been a tough year, as I said at the beginning of the sermon. If you have a word from the Lord of encouragement, 
raise your hand. I'd like to give you the mic. You can share that with us today. Anyone? All right. All the way in the back, as far as you can, you can go. It's Murphy's Law. All right. Um, as I was praying through my Passover season, I really spent a lot of time focusing on the psalm that we read in the Haggadah, um, Come Passover, that is the His Love Endures psalm. And um, I focused on that every day coming up to Passover. And what I really kind of got from the Lord coming through that and through that psalm was that... Um, his love endures for the harvest, both individually and corporately. Um, and his love endures for you. And as I was just like really listening to the spirit in that, what I felt like the spirit was saying is, um, I've been with you from the beginning to the end and I've done miracles for you. And I'm not gonna stop here. My love endures for you and I will continue to do miracles for you. Um, and so I would encourage you, each of you in that, not just as a corporate community, but individually, his love endures for you. Um, and you can take that to the bank and you can uh, hold on to that in whatever you're going through um, this season. Thank you, Shanna. That, that is such a good, good word. And I want to just, our intercession time is just so powerful. And um, I think I took a picture of it, if I can find it here. Um, but it just kind of confirms also what we were hearing in our intercession time. Um, yeah, one of the words in the intercession time was this. I'm not done. Speaking of the harvest, the Father's saying, I'm not done with you. I'm not done. I mean, you know, we're half the size we were, and we're struggling. And, uh, you know, it, it's been a tough, tough season that we've been through. God's saying, I'm not done with you. Kind of what you, you were saying. I'm not done I have much to do here in the harvest. Yeah, his loving kindness endures forever and ever. Thank you for that word. Someone else? All right. I'm going to go ahead and close with this word. Um, this is one of the words that, you know, we have themes in our intercession uh, every week. And we invite you to come to intercession if you'd like to come. It's at 12 every week. Uh, down right below the sanctuary in room one. Um, and we pray based on themes that, uh, that we get primarily in the Council of the Prophets. Um, and so we follow these themes. But this is a, a word from the Lord. I sense the Lord is saying, this is my church. It's not your church. It's my church. It's not Pastor Mark and Don's church. It's not the elders' church. It's not the board of directors' church. It's my church. Yield to me. Submit to me. Follow me. I am the chief shepherd. If you do not, you will... If you do, you will survive and even thrive in the next wave of coming judgments. If you do not you will end up on the trash heap of other churches 
who were uprooted due to arrogance and fleshly ambition. I really sense the Lord saying, you serve me, you draw close to me. I'm the chief shepherd. Follow me as a community. Follow me. Everything's going to be okay. I will see you through the shaking that's taking place in the nation. But if you reject me and bring in your own agendas as a church and neglect my spirit and what I'm wanting to do, that's just arrogance. And with that arrogance, you'll end up uprooted in these judgments. Do you realize so many churches are uprooted every year? Most of the time because they're just in the flesh. They're, they're, they're doing church as if it's theirs. They're not following the, the lead of Messiah. So they just don't make it. Not, not all of them, but many of them, that's the reason they don't make it. And I sense God saying, you know what? You're smaller than, than you know, you, you're, you're just, you, it's easy to get discouraged. Don't be discouraged. I'm with you. I'm not done. It's not over. Draw close to me. Get underneath my wings. This will pass, and you will reemerge. And so I want to encourage you with that word, that God is for us. Hang in there. Be encouraged. This shaking of the nations is something that's going to go on for, for, for a while. In fact, I think that a lot of nations are going to be shaken right down to the ground. I think along with the shaking, there's a sifting. God says, not only will I shake the nations, I'm going to sift the church. So in times like these, what happens is this. The only ones that are going to come are the bold and the courageous. See, see you're here today. There's a price tag on that. There, there's a lot of people, they're just, they're afraid to come out. There, there's all kinds of reasons why they can't come. Now, I want to say there are legitimate reasons for not coming. They're listed in the Torah. I don't have time to go over them. But most people are not coming, not based on those legitimate reasons. It's rooted in fear and a number of other factors. And they're just saying, you know what? I'm not going to come right now. Yeah, that's the sifting. That's the sifting. What God is after is people whose hearts are fully His his eyes go to and fro throughout the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, not partly fully his, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. And you're here because you have a heart for God. There's a fullness of commitment in you coming in the midst of a pandemic that speaks volumes to the King of Kings. And I believe he is pleased with you. He's pleased with us. Let's continue to find our refuge underneath his wings. So we'll just close and have the Aroni benediction, but let me close with prayer. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Jesus, we gladly declare with much joy, you are the chief shepherd of the harvest of the body of Christ everywhere throughout the world. You are the head you are the leader. You're the chief pastor. And we submit to you gladly. We declare you're doing a great job. And we trust in you. 
Encourage our hearts today, pull us together, blow on us, and use us in the coming weeks, months, even years to be a light to this nation as it falls apart all around us. That there would be a mighty throng of people that will come into your kingdom when they see the light and the hope in the hearts of those who are called by your name. We love you. We thank you. We trust in you. We shall not fear. We shall rise again. In Jesus' name, amen. Shabbat shalom.